This is Boardwalk Talk, a podcast of interviews with people doing important work and who have interesting spiritual journeys to share. My name is Jeff Nowers, host of this podcast. I'm also an Anglican priest based at St. Aidan's Parish in the East End of Toronto, just a block away from the beach boardwalk. Welcome to the conversation. Dennis O'Hara is Emeritus Professor in the Faculty of Theology of St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto. He's also associated with the graduate faculty of the U of T's School of the Environment. But Dennis is more than a professional academic. He began his career as a chiropractor and then later studied naturopathic medicine, earning his credentials as a licensed naturopathic doctor. Dennis O'Hara spoke at the Church of St. Aidan in March 2020, at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, shortly before public gatherings were suspended and quarantine measures ushered in. His engaging and wide-ranging presentation attempted to respond to a basic question. What does it mean to care for our common home? He began by discussing how human life is situated within the history of the universe at large. And the the universe is about 14 billion years old. It's 13.8 billion years, give or take a bit. Um, The number sometimes changes, but we've been stuck on 13.8 for about 10 years, so pretty reliable. So it's about 14 billion years old, and your job well, metaphorically, is to write the story, the history of the universe. So each page will have about um, a million years of history on it, and there'll be 500 pages in each volume, and that would mean you'd need 28 volumes. Okay, you can do the math, it, it, it works. Um, so Earth would show up in volume 19, right? Volume 19. And uh, the, most primi- <clears throat> excuse me, the most primitive cellular life would, would show up in volume 21, right? volume 21. So that's when life starts on Earth. Now, the most primitive humans, and here I'm being really generous and talking about when human life shows up, would be on page 498 of volume 28, the last volume. But what we consider to be human civilization wouldn't it show up until the last word on the last page of the last volume, right? It's part of our mindset. So the story isn't all about us, yeah? You know, we, we, most of you are my generation, right? So when we were being raised, it was all about us, right? And even though I would suggest that most of you probably understand that we do live in an evolutionary universe, Most of our thinking is still based as if we lived in that pre-Copernican universe where the Earth was the center of everything, right? So our thinking is still very much pre-Copernican, even though we think, we we, we understand that we live in an evolutionary universe. So again, our mindset needs to start to shift. And we're we're doing this as societies. We're beginning to realize that if you want to have healthy, uh, healthy humans, you have to have a healthy planet. If you've got polluted water and polluted air and polluted soils, you're going to have polluted people. If you want to have a healthy human economy, you have to have a healthy earth economy. So we're starting to get this slowly, but we're going to be exploring how this shift in thinking uh, needs to go a bit further. 
So the first insight that we, that's going to frame this new thinking is that the story isn't all about us, right? That's the first thing we want to gain. I also want to point out, and the theologian in me is going to creep up every once in a while here, um, I also want to point out that normally when we talk about the evolutionary story, you know, you've got the Big Bang and energy and then you get matter and then you get primitive life and then more advanced life, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we always tell it as a physical story. We never talk about it as a spiritual story. So I think it's important for us to remember that this, there's a sacredness to creation. When Thomas Berry, who's written a lot about these things, answers the question, why did we get into this mess after all? How, why did, how do we get into this ecological crisis we're in? He summarizes it, as Tom's very good at doing, by saying, humans saw themselves as separate from everything else. You know, we're the subject, everything else is objects, we're superior, everything else is inferior, it's there for our use, etc., etc. So we saw ourselves as separate from everything else, and we lost a sense of the sacredness of creation. If something isn't sacred, you can do what you want to it. When people come into a church, they don't break out into a hockey game or fist fights or whatever. Well, hopefully not. Um, you know, we, we expect to act with a certain decorum and respect, right? So we lost a sense of the sacredness of creation and we saw ourselves as separate from everything else. But if we look at this universe story, it, contra it, it challenges both of those, those thinking. Now, in terms of the sacred story, I mean, you can tell the universe story without it being sacred. Uh, you know, Richard Dawkins certainly would. Um, I would disagree with him, and, as I do on many of the things he says. But nevertheless, um, we as Christians see it as a sacred story as well. And, and we see this. I am so used to walking around. <laughs> I want to stay married to this speaker. Um, we see this from scripture, right? The prologue to John's gospel, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. Or in Paul's letter to Colossians, he, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things on heaven and earth were created he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we have this sense that this is a sacred story. The universe story isn't about just a physical story. It's a sacred spiritual story as well, that it has had a divine presence from the beginning. When I was being raised up uh, as, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, Christ was the, the redeemer, and so Christ showed up for 30 some odd years and well, that's it. He came, went, and it's gonna come again. But this way of thinking, which is about Christ not only as redeemer, but also as creator says, no, Christ has been part of this story all along, which means Christ has been in all of those volumes, not just in volume 28, in the last word on page 500 in volume 28. There's been a Christ presence throughout all of those volumes. Change in mindset. This is a sacred story, not just a physical story. So we add that to our list of insights to frame our thinking. The universe story has both a physical and a spiritual dimension. Now, here we have our 28 volumes. Uh, you can't see them numbered, but believe me, they are. And there's actually 29 of them, so if anyone is OCD and starts counting. But I'll just say that last book is like an index or a glossary or something. I couldn't get a picture with 28 only. 
Um, but in any case, so if Earth begins to develop in, in volume 19, and phytoplankton, who are the, the ones that give us oxygen, right? They, they oxygenate the planet. Before them, very little oxygen. Um, they show up in volume 21, because that's when the most primitive life shows up on Earth. Could humans have emerged into the story in volume 20? Okay, this is not a rhetorical question. So people, you can shout it out. Could, if, if Earth starts in volume 19 and oxygen shows up in volume 21, could humans have shown up in volume 20? No, why not? No oxygen, exactly. So you, you, ha you can only come into the story as a life form when the Earth is prepared for your emergence. So think of it this way. We've got humans show up two and a half million years ago, but if we go back 2,500 million years, we have the, the plankton. And then before the, or after them, you eventually get the fish and the land plants and the insects, reptiles, mammals, birds, etc. So imagine you're a reptile. Uh, you show up about 300 million years ago. Now you can show up because there's already insects and there's already plants. So in other words, you've got a place to live, you've got things to eat, you know, the, the uh, earth has prepared what you need for your emergence. You're dependent on everything that preceded you. Now, in terms of birds and mammals, you could care less. You don't need them. In fact, you'd rather they weren't there because some of them are eating you, right? Or they're competing for your food. Some of those birds eat the insects that you want to eat. So you'd rather they're not there. But in any case, you don't need them. So what if you happen to be that last critter that shows up in the story? When I, when I was growing up, and I'm sure you were taught it too, in science class there was that pyramid, right, where humans were at the top of the pyramid, you know, we were it. It was all about us. Well, when you think of it this way, we're the most vulnerable in, in this line of critters. Because we're the ones that came in last. We need all of these other ones that came before us because Earth gives us the things that we need because these life forms give us the things that we need. Right? We're dependent on them. So rather than seeing us as superior and separate from everything else, we're really highly dependent, highly connected. So the later your character appears in the story, the more dependent you are on the work of earlier characters. We're latecomers. So we're more dependent and vulnerable than probably everything else around. So it behooves us not to act in ways that are going to get rid of the insects, like the bees, or the birds, or the plants, you know, through monocultures and GMOs and such, or destroying the phytoplankton. We depend on all of these to give us what we need. It behooves us not to destroy them. That's a utilitarian approach, but sometimes, you know, I get philosophical right there. I'm just being plain practical. So this is where you get to do some work. Does the earth need our care? I want you to, I want you to talk about that, to think about it. And, and if not care per se, then what then? What might it need? I'm often asked, uh, you know, about we should be good stewards of the earth. I don't like that. Um, I, look, if you're talking about which would you want, dominion or stewardship, I'll take stewardship. You know, 
But uh, the notion of stewardship, I mean, the, biblically, the, the steward took over when the master was gone. So in, the, in this corollary, it means God is gone, so we're taken over in God's place. Well, I don't like that theological message right there. Also, the steward knows what, this, what needs to be done in order to take care of the land. Well, we don't. And the land needs the care of the steward. It doesn't. It's, and also, it's a model that tends to be rather hierarchical and patriarchal. And so on that level alone, I'm not too happy with it. So, so then everyone says, so what model do you want? And I go, I'm not sure. <laughs> Some people talk about a partnership model. Yeah, okay, I think that's closer. Um, companion model, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good with that one. Or that my favorite, although it's hard to say, is a sojourner model. You know, that, like we're co-journeyer, we're journeying together. I like that idea too, but it's, it's a little, takes a little longer to explain. So the fastest one is companion. So a nice way that Tom Berry puts this is that um, Earth needs us to act in ways that are mutually enhancing for us and the rest of creation. It's a nice way to sum it up. So we can add this to our list of insights. We need to act in ways that are mutually enhancing for us and the rest of creation. Okay, so these are the insights that we're, we're gleaning. So how do we understand Earth as home? So how would you define home? And your definition of home for like our home where we live, would that be the same as the way you would define earth as home? Like, so for instance, you know, there are certain characteristics that you would say, oh, if I felt good about my home, it would, it would be this, you know, it wouldn't leak water. Okay, well, does that apply to earth? You know, clearly not in the same way because we need the rain. So how would you define home? And how would you um, maybe see the definition or our understanding of home as it, reply, uh, as it applies to the human built environment as opposed to earth as home? But when we think about uh, home, like human homes, we often think about I own this house or I, I, you know, I have a real stake in it. But we, we can't say the same about the planet. We don't really own the planet. It's not ours. Even when we own a particular piece of land, like if people are living along Lake Erie right now, many of them, their homes are getting flooded out, right? And as the oceans rise, there's all kinds of places, like the Florida Keys, going to be underwater. You know? um, I was speaking one time in Boston, I just couldn't get across to them how important this, the, the rise in the oceans were until I said, Logan Airport is going to be underwater. And that, wow, now that was, this is a catastrophe. We can't have this, right? So uh, there's a sense of, even if you think you own it, well, maybe you do until a hurricane comes along, right? Or uh, we have a sense of detachment in the sense that I can sell my home and move away. But we certainly can't do that with, with the Earth. We're Earthlings. Even when we go up into space, we have to create a mini Earth. You know, we have to bring the oxygen and water with us, and we have to compensate for the loss of gravity, etc. We're earthlings. We're deeply rooted to this place. So we can think about our Earth as home in the sense of interdependence, that we have emerged from Earth's creative processes, its evolutionary processes, and we remain deeply dependent on those. 
So Earth as home has a sense of interdependence. We also have a sense of, when we think about humans, we think about our genetic coding and our cultural coding. So our genetic coding, like all life forms, we, if you look at the DNA structure of plants or insects or humans, um, it's the same mapping that we use. I mean, it's different DNA, but it's the same process. It's the same kind of mapping. So, and all of us, that genetic coding tells them how to exist. Like, you don't have to teach a spider how to make a web. It's genetic coding gives it the instinctual knowledge on how to make a web. Uh, a mother bear doesn't have to um, shape the paw of its, its cubs to catch salmon. The ability to catch salmon, to some degree, is already in the shape of the claws and the, the way those uh, paws work, right? It's already genetically, they're genetically coded to hunt salmon. Now, the mother bear still has to show them how to do it, right? She instructs them. If, she, if, you, if they don't get that instruction, they, they aren't very good at it. It takes them a long time to pick it up if they pick it up at all. Um, so there's a bit of a genetic coding that is telling them, oh, this is how you do it. My instincts tell me, my genetics tell me. Birds don't need to be told how to build a nest. They just know how to do it. That's genetic coding. We have genetic coding too. You know, I had dinner tonight. I, didn't have, I don't have to sit here and figure out how to digest it. It just gets done. My genetics does that. But humans also have cultural coding. You know, we have to train our children how to be part of our culture. We have to teach them how to survive. If you have no education whatsoever, you won't survive. Unlike spiders, no problem. It's all built in. Their genetic coding does it all. For us, you have to be taught. No mother spiders teach their kids anything. If anything, the kids' genetics say, get away from mom because if she sees me, she'll eat me. <laughs> Human mothers don't tend to do this with their children. So that's not something that they, our genetics has to tell our children. But we do have to train them. So we have our cultural coding as well as our genetic coding. Now sometimes, as I said earlier, my genetic coding will say, this is how I, I can digest this stuff for you. Don't worry about it. You put the food in, I'll digest it. But sometimes humans get a little crafty. They use their cultural coding um, to affect the way we do our food. So for instance, in the latter 1970s, I was learning about something called trans fatty acids. Now, humans make, trans fatty acids don't exist in nature. We made them. Why did we make them? Well, if you put trans fatty acids into food, they last a long time. Girl Guide cookies used to be jam-packed with trans fatty acids. Trans fatty acids actually make things taste better. I don't know why. It's just the human mouth feels happier when it's eating trans fatty acids. The problem is that those trans fatty acids aren't good for our cardiovascular system. They're, they're very detrimental to us. And some studies have shown that they're carcinogenic and all kinds of other bad things. So humans, the human culture says, I can have the ingenuity to make something like trans fatty acids because economically, it's good if those Girl Guide cookies get made and can last for a year or longer. But my genetic coding is saying, what the heck is that? And when I ingest it, it doesn't know what to do with it. So if I want to be healthy, my cultural coding has to be in sync with my genetic coding, which means that if I'm going to eat food, it shouldn't have all these GMO things in it and you know, shouldn't have pesticides in it or herbicides in it. 
because my body isn't wired, it isn't genetically coded for digesting that stuff. So humans have to harmonize our cultural coding with our genetic coding, otherwise our home becomes hostile to us. Okay? So we're gonna add that to our list of things. Our cultural coding must harmonize with our genetic coding. This is, um, you know, one of those uh, famous pictures of Earth. How many of you uh, remember when Lance Armstrong uh, stepped onto the moon? Lance Armstrong? Or, well, not Lance Armstrong, uh, Neil Armstrong, sorry. Yeah, Lance is the other guy. We don't want to uh, put that aside, yeah. You, you can edit that out of this thing. Yeah, that's true, which we don't approve of, that's right. Um, yeah, when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, um, I was down at uh, City Hall. They had a big screen and, and they showed it. Was anyone else down there at night? Okay, you couldn't see a darn thing. It was like a sheep in a, in a snowstorm. But we all pretended we could see it. I mean, in those days, the, you know, the, the clarity just wasn't so good, especially when you're projecting it that big on a screen and all that kind of stuff. But it was fun. Well, and, until the subways and public transit wasn't running anymore. And I lived at Keelan, the 401 in those days, so it was a long walk home, let's just say. But anyways, it was a very exciting event. Where was I going? Oh yeah, Neil Armstrong uh, on the moon. When, when we first saw that, and we first saw those images of the Earth rising over the lunar horizon, see, that changes your mindset as well. We had, we had only, we never had seen Earth that way. And the first time I saw that image of Earth rising over the lunar landscape, the, uh, everyone, as soon as they see it, they always look for their home, right? You see, you see an image like this, and you look for North America. Okay, well, it's on the other side uh, in, in this case, but you look for your home. And the first thing that I realized when I saw it was that uh, Earth, Canada was not pink. Right? Because every map, every globe I've ever seen of Canada was always pink. Right? But true, it, it's actually, it's not. Who knew? It was not pink. And there's no borders. Right? It changes your perspective. And it's small. It's small. And it's only one. Like when, when I was growing up, uh, you know, being on, uh, on Lake Ontario, I, I mean, the, the, it was considered the water was infinite. Right? The, the water in the Great Lakes was infinite. Well, of course it's not. We, didn't, we knew it wasn't literally infinite, but you know, might as well be with so much. And so in those days, the solution to pollution was dilution. Just dump it in Lake Ontario, right? And besides, you know, with the rains and the waters coming in through the rivers, it, it's, it's going to go down the St. Lawrence and, and past Montreal where there's those ha Montreal Canadian fans. And after all, our pollution should go down there anyways, you know. It was as if Lake Ontario was a big toilet, right? That was our mindset. But then we learned that 98% of the water in the Great Lakes never goes anywhere. And it's left over from the last ice age. Well, that changes your thinking. That changes the way you understand the Great Lakes as home, because that water isn't going anywhere. If you put something in it, it's staying there. You're gonna have to deal with it, right? We started to realize that this is a finite planet. It has a common atmosphere. 
It's got a common biological and geological heritage that we've inherited. It's got a common future. When you uh, think of this universe story, and we've talked about you know, this story that's written in 28 volumes, and we've talked about the role of the phytoplankton and the plants and the insects and such, each of these are characters in the story. They prepared the planet for our emergence. The story's also about them, not just us. We're a character in the story, absolutely. But they're characters in the story as well. They're subjects in that story. They have a role to play. Right? So we have to start to think about the common good. But by common, we don't just mean the human good, but the good of everyone who's part of that story. Because we're interdependent, we're relying on each other. You know, humans can act in ways that are really harmful to the insects. Not good, because that's eventually going to come back on us. So we need to act in ways that are mutually enhancing for us in the, and the rest of the planet. This is a way to understand the place of our common home. So. Earth is a community of subjects, not a collection of objects. You know, where humans saw ourselves as separate from everything else, we're the only subject, everything else is an object for our use. No. Earth is a community of subjects, not a collection of objects, where the human is the only subject. No. It's a community, a community of subjects. In Christianity, we talk about there being two books of Revelation. So scripture, that's the one everyone always gets right. Now, sometimes they'll start off with the book of Revelation, but we recognize, yeah, scripture is a book of Revelation. It's a way of coming to know about God. But creation is also a book of Revelation. It is also a way of coming to know about God. We already said that there's this Christ dimension that has been part of creation history throughout all these 28 volumes, long before humans even showed up, right? So what does that mean? Well, th this is a sacred story, and because there's a sacred dimension to it, it's a way that we can learn about God. Creation teaches us about God. So it behooves us to read both of these books. Certainly read scripture, absolutely. But we need to reacquire the ability to read creation as a book of revelation as well. Now, usually people, when I talk about creation being a book of Revelation, I get some pushback on this. So, of course, uh, whenever I get pushback, I, I turn to scripture, right? So in this um, letter to the Romans, Paul is uh, answering the question, okay, we've had the benefit of Christ's teachings, but what about all those pagans out there who didn't? Are they all condemned? Like, we're gonna be saved because we've had Christ's teaching. What about everyone else? And in fact, you could increase that and say, what about all the, not just the people who didn't hear Christ, but what about all the people who preceded him showing up? And Paul says, no, no. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that God has made. So they are without excuse. In other words, there's an, there's an order to creation, there's an intelligibility to creation that, we, that teaches us about God. 
so we can read this book of creation, so we can know what's right and wrong. You know? When Moses is walking through the desert, he didn't have a, a Bible in his hip pocket, but he still came to know what was right and wrong. So if, if creation is a book of revelation, if creation is a way of coming to learn about God, what does that mean when we cause species to go extinct? Hmm? What is that doing? We lose the opportunity to experience the divine. We're silencing part of God's voice. Like, really? <laughs> Arrogant a little bit, don't you think? When you think about it that way? We're silencing a, a correspondence from God when we are destroying creation. So, we add this to our insights to frame our thinking. Earth is a book of revelation, right? It needs to be treated with respect. This is Jack Forbes. Uh, he passed away in 2011, but he is a scholar of Aboriginal um, uh, cultures, and uh, he's, um, oh, I forget the name of his tribe, sorry. Um, but anyway, he's indigenous himself. And my favorite book of his is, is a book called Columbus and Other Cannibals. Right? He, he saw, because he said, you know, these white people, they come and they overconsume, right? And, and they destroy the planet, which is, they, they end up killing each other. Their, their, their consumption is destroying the very earth that supports them, right? So that's why he called us cannibals. Um, anyways, it's a great book. If you get a chance, you might want to read it. But this is a quote of his that I, I find really powerful. He said, for us, and he's talking here about indigenous people, for us truly, there are no surroundings. I can lose my hands and still live. I can lose my legs and still live. I can lose my eyes and still live. But if I lose the air, I die. If I lose the sun, I die. If I lose the earth, I die. If I lose the water, I die. If I lose the plants and animals, I die. All of these things are more important to me, more essential to my every breath, than is my so-called body. What is my real body? We are not autonomous, self-sufficient beings as European mythology teaches. We are rooted just like the trees. But our roots come out of our nose and mouth like an umbilical cord, forever connected with the rest of the world. Isn't that a great image, right? What a change in mindset. You know, what is my real body, you know? Is it this skin-encapsulated ego? Is that what I am? Or, I am, but, or does my body not end here? but is so interconnected with the rest of the ecosystem that to be at home in this planet, I have to develop this mindset, this new mindset, because my impact is no longer just local. Have many of you been to Crawford Lake Conservation Area out by Milton? Yeah, oh, several of you. So uh, those who have been there, there, there's an Iroquois village, right? And, uh, there used to be an authentic Iroquois village there many years ago, right? It's, it was there for thousands and thousands of years. 
And in Crawford Lake itself, it's a lake with a lot of silt on the bottom. And you can take core samples out of the silt and you can map using the, 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 the silt, you can map what was happening through thousands of years. And so one of the things I found in the silt is that you'd see uh, pollen uh, from, from corn and, and uh, uh, beans and squash for about 25 years. And then for about 25 years, you wouldn't see any. And then you'd see it again for another 25 years and then it'd be gone. And of course, what this meant is that the, the local Iroquois village would be there for about 25 years, you know, harvesting from the, the waters and the, the land, but also growing their crops. But after about 25 years, the soils would get depleted, so they'd move away. And then in about 25 years, the, that area would get depleted a bit, so they'd move back. And, and that's fine. You know, that, that kind of agriculture, that kind of uh, existence is just fine because it's all within the ability of the earth to recover, right? So your, your footprint on the earth isn't so much that it can't recover. No, it's quite, earth can handle that, no problems. And so this is a really good biodynamic way to exist. And, and they did for thousands and thousands of years, right? So they, they had a local impact and they had a mindset that was suitable for that impact. And they knew how to flourish. They could act in ways that were mutually enhancing for them and the rest of the ecosystem. What we need to do is to develop global minds for a global impact. Because now our toxins have these global impacts. When I was in grade nine science class, brother Edward Drury, talked about the polar bears up in northern Manitoba that uh, in their livers had toxins that came from the Ohio Valley. Now, polar bears in northern Manitoba don't wander down to the Ohio Valley, but the pollution from the Ohio Valley does go up into the atmosphere and goes down into the water and the fish eat it and then the, the seals eat the fish and then the polar bears eat the seals. And it, gets in their, it gradually bioaccumulates and gets in their livers. That's when in grade nine, I'm going, oh, there is no escaping this. There is no escaping this. You know, pollution, uh, we have a, an impact on the entire planet now, right? We've got to start having this more global mindset about our, our impact on the planet. So when we want to develop this new mindset, to think in the way that Brian Swim is saying, you know, to be like these insects that can now fly. Or, or like uh, Jack Forbes is saying, that we see ourselves rooted in the planet, but our, our, being, our body isn't just this, it's connected with everything else. You know, to have that way of living like the Iroquois Crawford Lake, where we act in ways that are mutually enhancing for us in the rest of creation. If we want to develop that mindset, what has to change? What has to change? And what might guide these changes? It really comes down to, Tom Berry would say, it, it requires the reinvention of the human. Like, it, you have to reinvent the human on every level. We have to rethink, re-examine everything. Not a big deal, you know, just, <laughs> just give me a weekend, right? But, it, but it's true. We have to rethink our economic, our legal system. Like our legal system, our economic system, our political systems are all based on the flourishing 
of the human as if the human is separate from everything else. And if we're going to be in a more, have a more ecocentric approach, then we have to rethink those. You cannot have healthy people on a sick planet. So I, I also raise the question, um, if we're talking about the changing of our mindset, and, uh, and we're also talking about our common home, you know, common home has a sense of the notion of uh, a certain amount of hospitality right, because it's common, we have to share it. And so it raises a question, are we hospitable to other human residents of our common home? And, and okay, well, you're already giving me an answer on that, I think, not, not particularly, right? Uh, there's a wonderful article by a guy named Costello uh, from Lancet in 2009, and it's wonderful for some images in it. I just want to quickly share those with you. So. He is not a bad cartographer. So he's not like, this is, you, you might not recognize it, but that's North America and South America on the left, and then Africa and Eurasia, etc., on the right, right? It's the world. But he's drawn the countries based on the size of the carbon dioxide that they're emitting, okay? Now, Canada would be a lot fatter if it was on a per capita basis. On a per capita basis, we're ranked in the worst three on the planet. Sometimes we're the second worst, sometimes we're the third worst. Maybe in a good year we're the fourth worst, but we're among the worst on a per capita basis. But because our population is relatively small, Canada is particularly fat up here. So you get a sense of the size of the countries based on, like with China, really fat. Uh, United States, really fat. Uh, this is based on their CO2 emissions. And then you look at the suffering that, uh, that is experienced as a result of those emissions, okay? So here, North America really scrawny, almost disappears. But Sub-Saharan Africa, Africa, India, uh, gargantuan, they're really fat, right? And, and so when you put the two together, the top is telling you the people who are creating the problem are not the people who are suffering from the problem. It's a powerful visual, because it, it, like I could talk about this for half an hour and give you all the statistics, but this is, there it is, visually, there it is. We're acting in ways that are not particularly hospitable. Now, we're starting to experiencing, uh, we're starting to experience some of the consequences of climate change, right? For many, many years, climate change was not really interesting to talk about. I would talk about it and people would politely listen, but they had no game, you know, no skin in that game, as we say. But now we're starting to get it. It's starting to affect us. Now, we still have the wealth and the, the technology and sophisticated society to compensate. If it gets too hot, uh, we'll turn on the air conditioning. If it gets too cold, we'll crank up the, 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 the furnace, right? But people in sub-Saharan Africa who have not created the problem are the ones who are dying from the problem. And people do die from climate change. You know, millions of people die every year from climate change. Hundreds of million die or suffer from the consequences of climate change. So are we hospitable with the rest of creation? Well, if I asked you yes or no, what would you say? No. no. All right, so let's just move on with that one. Uh, we're in the midst of a, a mass extinction event. When I was talking about this 20 years ago, no one believed me. And they'd always say, oh, give me a reference for that. I used to have to walk around with 
popping out references out of my head all the time. Now people get it. There's been five mass extinction events in Earth history. Uh, the big one was uh, 250 million years ago, 250, 255 million years ago. 95% of the species went extinct. Mass extinction events happen when things like an asteroid hits the planet and you get all this dust that gets blown up or you get a whole bunch of volcanic activity. So a mass extinction, to be called a mass extinction, you have to have over 50% of the species going, uh, well, dying. And so 250 million years ago, about 95% of species on land and, and sea went extinct. Uh, about 65, 67 million years ago, we went from the Mesozoic era to the Cenozoic era. And that's when the dinosaurs went out. That was a mass extinction. And that's when, when, when they went. But we're now in the midst of a new one. It used to be called the Holocene. Now we're calling it the Anthropocene um, mass extinction. Now we're in the midst of it. It's not, it's coming, no. The only question is, is how big is it going to be? Is it going to be 65% of the species or 95% of the species? See, all these other mass extinctions uh, were, uh, happened by chance. An asteroid hits you. Well, you can't, you know, you, nothing you can do about that. If you, you know, back in those days, there was no way of dealing with it. It just happens. But for the first time, you have a mass extinction that is happening by a single species. It's a life form that's causing it. And what's most intriguing about this is the, it's a single species that comes to the realization that it's behaving in ways that are causing the mass extinction, which includes it in the mass extinction event, and its response is to continue and actually increase the activities that are causing the mass extinction. Now that is pathological. That is truly pathological, right? But that's us, right? So we're being hostile to other humans for sure, but also for the rest of the planet. And this is going to disrupt, and it is disrupting the biological systems that are supporting our life and all of the other life forms. Who are we, what kind of message is that sending to God? You know, we have so much respect for your creation that we're wiping it out. Our ability to do all this resource extraction, to build these, these technologies, to develop these agricultural systems, you know, to, to develop these plastics and, and such. I mean, there's a lot of good in some of that, right? Some of this is good stuff. Uh, take away my glasses and I'm legally blind. Give me my glasses and I've got normal vision. I'm grateful for the technology that produces these glasses, right? I'm, I'm not wanting to go away from any of this altogether. Right? Um, but but the, the, what we, have, we saw as the glory of the human developing motorized vehicles and, and uh, you know, global economies and such, all centered on the human, that was our glory. But it's been the desolation of the rest of the planet. And the desolation of that planet is now our destiny. Our work right now is survival. You know, it's dealing with living in a mass extinction event. There's no getting away from it. And it's only going to get worse, and a lot worse. A lot worse. We're now seeing migrants being weaponized. You know, who would have thought? If you think migration is an issue now, you, we haven't seen even the tip of the iceberg. 
We've got a real awakening coming. So all human institutions, profession, programs, and activities must now be judged primarily by the extent to which they inhibit, ignore, or foster a mutually enhancing human-Earth relationship. Tom Berry, uh, I'm going to use one more of his quotes here. The Earth is primary and the human is derivative. What does he mean by that? You can't have healthy people on a sick Earth. Earth has, is primary. It has to be healthy for humans to be healthy. When I get a cold, I might think the world is ending, but it really isn't, right? But if the Earth is sick, if the atmosphere is sick, I'm sick. When I was in uh, Korea uh, in uh, 2013 doing some lectures, uh, they had all these warnings about the, uh, about the uh, uh, pollution that was coming over from China. I was in Seoul. And uh, I thought, ugh. You know, in Toronto, whenever they'd have these smog alerts, I never even noticed it. I'd go out, and it never affected me whatsoever. So they have a smog alert in Korea, so, or in Seoul, so no big deal. I go out, and I get about two minutes out, and I'm heading right back. There is no friggin' way. Like, I, if I had kept going, I would have been in respiratory arrest or something. It was, it was so powerful, right? If the planet is sick, we're going to be sick. If the waters are polluted, we're going to be polluted. If the soils are polluted, we're going to be polluted. You can't have healthy people on a sick planet. Earth is primary. Humans are derivative. We come out of the Earth processes. We evolve from them. The first concern in every field of human endeavor must be the integration with the Earth community, with our Earth home. If this community is diminished in its well-being, then every particular being within the Earth community is so diminished. Yet we try to be healthy on a sick planet through medical technologies. We try to deny this and think that it's just it's going to need a bit of technology and we'll be just fine. No. Not anymore. Maybe once upon a time, not anymore. This is the mindset that we need to be developing if we're going to survive and thrive in the 21st century. And I think this is where our religious convictions come into play. The magnitude of the changes that are required are enormous. They are not to be underestimated. And if we are going to sustain that great work, uh, the, the mere uh, rationalizations that we do won't be enough. We have to dig deeper. This is where I really think people of faith have a really important role. Um, because you can think about, you know, scientifically I need to, you know, eat more organic foods or whatever. Okay, that's great. All of that's really good. But to sustain the effort in the midst, in the midst of what's a, a really depressing set of circumstances requires something that feeds our spirit not deludes us, no, feeds our spirit, that reaches deeper, you know. We have to look at the mystery around us, the wisdom of creation, which is God's wisdom from that book of creation that can also teach us. That's what we need. We need to be learning from that because our own human knowledge won't sustain us. It won't be up to the task. We need to go deeper than that. Any of us who have been in those situations where, like, a child is sick, you know, sometimes it's overwhelming. 
You don't know where to turn. Medical technology or whatever is only going to take you so far. At a certain point, you're reaching deeper than that. You want to be part of something that's bigger than just my little story right here. I'm part of a bigger story, but it's a sacred story. And it's a story that includes a God who loves us and has nurtured us through 13.8 billion years of history. We've had that support for all those billions of years. I think people of faith can tap into that. And we can become prophets in our time that can sustain the energy, that can sustain the great work that needs to be done. In, in uh, feminist theology, we often talk about the squares on a quilt. No one is being expected to make the whole quilt. In a quilting bee, you don't do that. You do your square, and someone else adds their square. And, but collectively, we get a quilt at the end. Well, your lecture series is a square on the quilt. And then maybe you going back into your community and sharing some of this information, that's another square on the quilt. And you read something like Lodato Si, oh, that's another square on the quilt. You know, the eco-theology courses down at St. Mike's, another square in the quilt. You don't have to do it all, but you have to do your part. You're obligated to. And I think our faith can really inform that and enrich it and sustain it. And that's what we need. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Boardwalk Talk. We have many more episodes lined up, so join us next time for more conversation. For more information about St. Aidan's Parish, please visit www.staidansinthebeach.com. S-T-A-I-D-A-N-S, in the beach, all one word, dot com. I'm Jeff Nowers. Thanks for being part of Boardwalk Talk.